Welcome to the weekend services here at Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And I'm so glad to get to spend some time with you, whether you're over in East Hall, here in the sanctuary, watching online. We're glad that you're here. I'm also excited to continue our sermon series going through 1 John. We're calling it the Letter of Love. I hope you're learning a lot about God and his love for us and what that means for our lives. And if you have a Bible, I'd love to ask you to go ahead and take it out and open it to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can check it out on the screen behind me. We'll read it along, we'll read along together. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Here's what it says. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is God's word. I want to offer you an outline uh, that we're going to use to make sense of what we just read. If you're a note taker, you could write this outline down. And if not, you could just have it in your head kind of, like, kind of as mile markers to help us make sense of the direction we're going to take in response to this passage. But those three points are very simple and they go something like this. What is the greatest kind of love? What does that kind of love do in you? And what does that kind of love do through you? Okay, number one, what is the greatest kind of love? Number two, what does that love do in you? And then number three, what does that love do through you? Let's start with the first one. What is the greatest kind of love? I, I wonder how you would answer that question. If you came this weekend with someone you're dating, maybe you look at them and you say, oh, it's the, it's the butterflies I get when I see you. That's the greatest kind of love. If you've been married for a little while, you say, nope, no, that's not it. What is the greatest kind of love? Is it romantic love? Probably not. Now, when most of us think about the greatest kind of love, we tend to think of self-sacrifice. We say the greatest kind of love is, is giving yourself up for someone else, dying for them in the extreme or just in the everyday kind of way, laying down your privileges and your needs in pursuit of elevating and evaluating someone else's needs and, and wants. That's the kind of love that we value most, self-sacrificial love. And, and Jesus does say something like that in the Gospels. Jesus will say, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so it's tempting to look at that and say, aha, see, that's the greatest kind of love, laying down your life, self-sacrificial love. That is the greatest kind. But I think if we do that, we're missing a little something of what Jesus is saying. 
After all, he doesn't say that the greatest kind of love is self-sacrifice. He doesn't say the greatest kind of love is just laying down your life, period. No, instead he says the greatest kind of love is laying down your life for your friends. And actually that, that last little bit contains the most significant meaning. Let, let me explain uh, what I mean. I don't know if we have any first responders here, police, firefighters, EMT. Uh, you know, you have served us so well during COVID. So just in the off chance that we do have some of them here, would you mind joining me in celebrating them? Thank you so much. You know, it is, it is true that we often don't value and celebrate first responders the way we ought to until something tragic happens. So it feels right to take the time to say, hey, if you're here and you're a, a firefighter, a police officer, an EMT, a nurse, whoever I might be leaving out, we value you all the time. We're so grateful for you and thank you for the way you've served us during this pandemic. But you know, uh, first responders often put themselves in danger in order to uh, help other people out. A firefighter runs in to a burning building. A police officer puts herself between uh, danger and civilians. Uh, EMTs rush in to dangerous situations in order to provide much needed medical attention. And it's amazing and it's heroic and we celebrate it and we should but it's driven not as much by love as duty. Now, I don't mean first responders don't love people and they don't, they don't value people. They absolutely do, but they value people in the abstract. When a firefighter runs into a burning building, what that firefighter is saying is, I don't know who's in the building, but whoever is in the building, their life matters. They matter enough that I should go in to save them. I have a duty, I've made a commitment. I have said with my life, people matter even enough for me to risk, uh, to risk my life, to rescue them. When a police officer puts herself in danger, she doesn't have necessarily a personal relationship with the person she's protecting. She's doing it for duty. She's doing it because people matter. But that's wholly different than, say, for example, a father who rushes into a burning building. When the father rushes into a burning building, he isn't just saying people matter in general. There might be someone in there and, and their life should matter. No, the father is saying, I know exactly who is in there. I know that child. I know their face. I know their smile. I know their dreams. I know their fears. They matter enough to me individually because I know them. Their value and their worth matters enough to me to lay down my life for them. There's something deeper happening there. Let me give you another example. I don't know if you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. It's been out for almost 20 years. And let me just quickly give you my pastoral theory on spoiler alerts. There is a statue of limitations. So if you haven't seen Saving Private Ryan yet, I'm going to ruin it for you. Shame on you. Go be a good American. Watch the movie. But the movie Saving Private Ryan is about this family, the, the Ryans, a mom and four sons, all four sons serving in World War II. All four sons actually involved in the D-Day invasion of Normandy. And the movie begins with three of the brothers, three of the Ryan sons dying in the invasion. 
And when the War Department hears that, that three Ryan sons have given their lives in service to the country, but there's one Ryan son left, they decide that they need to, for the sake of that family, find him and send him home. The thinking is no family should pay that high of a price that this mother deserves to have her remaining son returned home to her safely. And so they commission a unit led by Tom Hanks in the movie. And that unit's mission becomes go all over France to find James Ryan and send him home to his family. And throughout the movie, Tom Hanks's unit is going to encounter incredible danger. In fact, most of them will die. And, and they wrestle in the movie about whether or not the math adds up. Why is it right to risk the lives of eight or ten, eight, ten or so uh, uh, soldiers in pursuit of the one man? They, they, will, they will wrestle with that over and over again. Why is this right? Is his life really worth the rest of us dying? And in fact, by the time you get to the end of the movie, it becomes apparent most of them will die. In fact, there's a, a final scene in the war side of the movie where uh, they have uh, repelled a German invasion of this town and Tom Hanks is, is dying in the scene. And he grabs James Ryan, who's played by Matt Damon, and he pulls him close. And with his dying words, he says to him, earn this. And the movie ends with, an older James Ryan at Normandy, looking over all of the graves, standing at the grave of Tom Hanks's character. And he's saying to Tom Hanks's grave marker, I've tried, I've tried to earn this. I've tried to live a lot. I know you died for me. I know you all died for me. I tried to earn this. And his wife comes over in this very poignant scene. His grandkids are behind him. His kids are behind him. His wife comes over and she tries to console him. And he's weeping and he says to her, tell me that I've, I'm a good man. Tell me that I lived a good life. And what he means is tell me that in the end, I deserved this. That if those men had known me, if those men had known who I became, they would have considered me worth dying for. You see, in that scene, he's tapping into something. The greatest kind of love isn't duty. It isn't a unit giving their lives for the idea of a man. What we want, what we crave, what we need is a kind of love that sees us and knows us and values us, us enough to say, I will do whatever you need because you are worth it. What we crave is not a firefighter, but a father. That is, by the way, the exact love that we will find God has for us in the Bible. In fact, John hints at it here in verses 9 and 10. Would you read them with me? Here's what he says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. These two verses hinge on that word propitiation. It's not a very common word. We don't use it in language today. But in, in Greek, what that word conveyed is, is to appease the wrath 
of an angry God. They would, they would use it in, in Greek paganism because they would say that if a storm welled up, for example, that meant that the sea God, Poseidon, was angry. And the only way to make the, the, the storm go away was to propitiate, was to find a way to get him to not be angry. This happens, for example, in the Odyssey when Ulysses is on his ship with his men and a storm rages because Poseidon is angry. And they decide that what they have to do is make Poseidon no longer longer be angry. So they grab a couple of their shipmates and they say to Poseidon, we know you're mad at us. Take it out on them. And they throw them into the water. They drown. Poseidon is happy and the storm ends and they get home. But in the Bible, when it talks about propitiation, it does not have an idea. One person grabbing another person and throwing them at an angry God. No, instead it has this idea that when God looks at us, he knows us. He knows the things we do and the things we would do if we thought we could get away with them. He knows the things we say and the things we would say if politeness wouldn't get in the way. He knows who we are. He knows our sin and our guilt and our shame. He knows our flaws and our weaknesses and he sees them and he's angry over them. How could he not be? He sees the people we've hurt. He sees the damage we've caused. How could he not be angry? But he, but he looks at us even in his anger, even in his full knowledge of who we are and what we've done and where we've been. And he looks at us and he loves us anyways. He looks at us at our very worst moment and he says, you are still worth loving. And he sends his son to come and live in our place and die in our place and raise from the dead. You see, the good news of the gospel of Jesus in the Bible is that when God saw us at our worst, he loved us with his best. That's the greatest kind of love. A love that says, I'm not dying for you out of duty or for honor or because I made some kind of commitment that is now binding on me. I'm dying for you because I see you and I love you and I value you and you are worth it to me. That's the kind of love you're going to find from the God of the Bible. But the second thing I want to show you is what that love does in us. It changes us. You'll pick up on this in verses seven and eight, by the way, because the writer will say, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He's saying that, that this love has such a transformative and formative impact on us that, that it will be obvious to everyone if we've experienced it. And the absence of, of that obvious nature will mean we haven't. Well, why? Why is it that this love would have such a transformative effect on us? Let me offer three ways. First, it changes the way we think about God. He tells us here, God is love. Now, what he's saying is that, that, that you, can't, you can't extricate love from God. God is love. So everything God does and everything God says and everything God requires has to be viewed through the prism of love. 
That whatever it is God would want to talk to you about, whatever it is he would put his finger on in my life or in yours, whatever subject matter he would want to undertake, whatever requirement he would put on us, he's doing that simply for one reason. He loves us. God is love. Now, let me give you an analogy that I think will help this make sense. Let's talk about surprise birthday parties. Have you ever thrown a surprise birthday party? The whole premise of a surprise birthday party is it only works if the person for whom you're throwing it has very little trust in you. Okay, that's the premise. We say, oh, shoot, is it your birthday? Ah, I forgot. I made plans. I can't be there. And while they have their feelings hurt, we snicker and put up streamers. That's the whole idea, right? It, it only works if they presuppose we don't love them. In fact, I'll give you a story from my childhood. My, my father is a pastor of a church in Southern Indiana. When I was like 14 years old, the church was gonna throw him a birthday party at a local park. Big party, everybody was gonna be there and it was gonna be a surprise. Okay, and, and the job given to my family was we had to get my dad to the park on his birthday under false pretenses. Now, now that's difficult because my family is what you might call indoorsy, okay? We, we don't spend time at the park. You don't get this skin tone by hanging out at the park, okay? We, we're hanging out indoors. So we got to figure out how we're going to get my dad, a man who does not go to parks, to go to the park for his birthday. So my mom decides that the best idea is that we're going to get in the car and we're going to go to dinner. We're going to tell him we're going to dinner. And that on the way to dinner, I will remember that, that I borrowed a CD. If you remember those, this is her idea. I will remember that I borrowed a CD. And for whatever reason, the people I borrowed the CD from, they need it right now. And they happen to be in the park. Okay, so that's my mom's genius idea. So we get in the car and we get a few minutes down the road. She looks in the rear view mirror, gives me the signal. And I say, oh, shoot. And she says, what? And I say, I borrowed a CD from this family and I forgot they need it today. And I think they're at the park. And she says, oh, well, that's no problem, Zach. We can go to the park. Well, my dad thought it was a problem, okay? It's his birthday. He doesn't want to go to the park. So he launches into this massive lecture about responsibility, okay? You are so irresponsible. It's my birthday. We have to go to the park because of you and your stupid CDs. And now looking back as an adult, I realize my dad must have been stressed about something, okay? But at the time, I mean, it's like a 10-minute drive to the park, and he is, I mean, he's calling me every Christian name under the book, okay? I mean, we're keeping it solidly PG, but he's letting me have it. And my mom looks at me in the rearview mirror, and she's got a look of, like, equal parts, half telling me I'm so sorry, and half telling me don't snitch, okay? So... I'm just taking it. My dad is just, is laying it. You're this and you're that. And, you're, you know, and so we pull into the park and, and, and everybody jumps out and says, surprise. And in that moment, my dad, I'm sure felt awful. And I just wanted to rub his face in it. Happy birthday, loser. But listen, the, the whole reason that setup worked is because my dad found it, found it within the realm of, of possibility that I was that irresponsible and that selfish and that self-centered and that I was ruining his birthday. He, he had a category for me being such an idiot that I would ruin his birthday. What if my dad had had a little more trust in me? Hey, I borrowed this CD. I know it's your birthday, dad, but we got to go to the park. Oh, okay, sure. 
going to the park, not a party at all, right? He would have seen right through it, but he didn't trust me, so he saw it differently. Listen, the first way realizing that God sees you and knows you and loves you is that you will begin to trust him. So when he wants to talk about your money or your, your sex life or your politics or where you live or your marriage or the way you raise your children or whatever it might be, instead of buckling up under that, instead of pushing back, instead of telling him to mind his own business, what you'll find yourself saying is, God, I know you love me. So what do you have to say to me? Is that true of you? Do you trust God? Has his love formed you in that way? The second thing that'll change is our definition of love. You notice that the writer says, love is from God. God is love. Boy, it's so tempting to take our own definition of love and then superimpose that onto God. God is love. Therefore, whatever I think love is, that's what God is. So, so we have grown up in a culture, for example, that says to love someone is to affirm them. But the way you love someone is you tell them every choice they make, every decision they make is theirs to make and their right to do so. That, that's love. But the writer isn't saying that every culture can take its own definition of love and ascribe it to God. He is literally saying that love comes from God. So therefore, whatever God does is loving. Whatever God says is loving. Whatever God wants is loving. And anything that's opposite to that, no matter how it feels to us, is actually not love. Where does your definition of love come from? Now I say this because I have to tell you as a pastor, I am increasingly brokenhearted at so many who, who wear the name of Jesus and yet seem to have no category for being challenged by Jesus. That I know as, as a pastor, if I were to get up on stage and to talk about politics or justice or sex or money or whatever, I would get angry emails from people saying, I don't like what you said. But listen, friends, brothers and sisters, hear me out on this. My job, our job is not to affirm you. It is to challenge you with the truth of a God who loves you enough to contradict you. Do you have a category for that? When's the last time Jesus challenged you and you changed? Because that equivocation of love with affirmation is a cultural one, not a biblical one. God, the God who saw us in our worst moment and gave us his best, the God of whom you can say he is love and love comes from him, often extends that love to us in the form of a rebuke, of a challenge, of a caution. But if we get God's love, it will change our definition of love. And the third thing it will change is how we view ourselves. Now, here's what I mean by that. Most of us exist on a scale. One end of the scale is pride. People who live at the extreme on that scale think everything we do is great. 
Everything we do is wonderful. We, we expect that everyone around us will share our opinion of us. On the other end of the scale is insecurity. And people who live there assume that no one sees value in them. They don't even see it in themselves. Now, I should pause here and say, I'm oversimplifying something. I know that. And I'm so grateful for counselors and mental health professionals who can help us work through these much deeper and bigger things. But if you'll indulge me, most of us exist on one end of that scale or the other. And it can fluctuate based on the room we're in or the week we're having or the mood we're in. But no matter where we find ourselves, the gospel of Jesus, the love of God challenges us. Because to those of us who come to God in pride, thinking we're great, thinking all we'll get is affirmation, the Bible tells us we are actually so guilty and so flawed and so sinful that God's anger was on us and required the death of his own son. So to the proud, it says, you must not be that great. You required Jesus' death. But to those who are insecure, to those who say, I could never be loved, God could never have room for me, the gospel says you must be worth something because God was willing to give Jesus to die for you. See, the love of God changes the way we view ourselves. It changes our definition of love. It changes how we think about God. It shapes us in so many ways. By the way, this is entirely what the book of 1 John is about, and I don't have time to explore the depths of the book. So if you will, let me offer you this suggestion. Over in the Heartwood Coffee, we're, we're, we're selling this book. And by the way, we, every book that we sell over in the coffee shop is at cost. We don't make any money off it. That's not the point. These are books we recommend to you. This is The Letters of John by John Stott. It's a book that will walk you through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And let me say this. I've been in school a long time studying theology, and this is the best commentary on any book of the Bible I've ever read. So I really want to encourage you to grab it and spend time with it and let the book of 1 John change the way you think about God, the way you think about love, and the way you think about yourself. You will, you will find it will be radically, radically helpful to you. But let me show you a third thing, and that is that it changes the way we view others. It does something not only in us, but through us. The first thing the writer says right at the very beginning is, is this love is not meant to be contained by us. We are not canisters in which God pours his love and it just remains there. It is meant to pour out through us in the way we live, in the way we speak, in the things we do. In fact, he's so convinced of that that this is what he'll say in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Not, not a lot of, or, you know, maybes or, you know, consider this or out clauses there. Just simply this. If you aren't known for love, then you don't know God. Because the consequence of knowing God and his love is that you will love. So here it feels only right to pause and say, are you known for love? Because the writer says, if not, you have every reason to wonder if you've experienced God's love, regardless of what label you would give yourself or experience you've had in the past or church background. He says, if you don't love, you don't know God. But he also says something really powerful about when we do love. Look at verse 12. Look at what he says. Verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, no one's ever seen God, but if, but if we love with God's love, they will see him in us. You know, John only uses this language one other time in the New Testament. That's in John chapter one, when he says, no one has ever seen God, but if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. So in, in the gospel of John, he says, no one's ever seen God, but if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. But in the first John, he says, no one's ever seen God, but if you've seen the people of God, love with God's love, you've seen God. In other words, for John, the church loving people with God's love is as powerful a witness to the reality of God as Jesus. That's how powerful it is when we love with God's love. Time would fail me to enumerate all the ways we could do this. But, but let me offer a few suggestions on how to get started that I think we really need to hear. So here are three ways that God, I believe, wants us to love others with his love. Here's the first way. Listen. Listen. You know, we have a culture of talking, not really, a culture of shouting. I shout my viewpoint and you shout yours. I shout my political party's talking points and you shout yours. I shout my worldview, you shout yours. I shout my opinion, you shout yours. I don't care what news channel you watch, I've seen them all. All the shows go like this. Here's a Republican, here's a Democrat, and they're gonna yell at each other for an hour. And you know what I've never seen? I mean, never. I have never seen this on a single news network. I have never seen one person go, you know, you made some excellent points. I might need to rethink some things. I've never seen it. I've never, we're, all, we're all just right all the time. Can you imagine the transformative effect that God's people could have in a culture where they said, it sounds like you have some interesting things to say. Tell me more. I'd really like to hear your heart behind that. Share more with me. You've challenged me in some good ways. I, I've come to see I might not be right. Could we talk some more? Can you imagine what that humility would be like? Can you imagine how that would go over? Here's the thing. The reason why we have a hard time admitting when we're wrong is because our identity and our viewpoints have become intertwined. I am my view. So if my view becomes wrong, then I'm wrong. And I don't have a category for that. So I'm just gonna keep shouting my view. Let me tell you something as a Christian. The worst thing someone could ever say to you is you're wrong and they're, and they're right in saying that you're wrong. The worst thing that could ever be true is that the thing that they're accusing you of, you are guilty of. But here's the good news. Even if they're right, God saw that, Jesus died for that, and he forgives you of that. So own it. Christians don't need to defend ourselves incessantly. We can be honest. We can confess. We can own our mistakes because they won't crush us. Our identity is not in being right. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. Here's the second way. Forgive people. Forgive people. Listen, if it's true that when God saw us at our worst, he loved us with his best. If that's true, then how should we react when people show us their worst? Listen, you want to change the world? I got news for you. You're not going to change it this November in the ballot box. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I'm just telling you, you're not going to change the world. You know how I know that? 
Because sometimes we elect a person with an R after their name. Sometimes we elect a person with a D after their name. Still the world. Nothing really changes. You want to change the world? Go to that family member, friend, coworker, colleague who's wounded you and forgive them. Expose them to a love that transcends pettiness and bitterness and watch what God does. It will literally, John says, be like showing them Jesus. Here's the third thing. Speak. Now, I want you to notice the order I put these in because it's very important. Listen, forgive, then speak. And when I say speak, I do not mean run on Facebook and post your, your political memes and your gifts and your, I mean, find those who are saying about themselves, I have no worth, I have no value, and share with them the good news that God knows that and loves them anyways. God sees us at our worst and he loves us with his best. God knows we're sinners. He knows we're guilty. He knows we should be ashamed. His anger is on us. And yet, and yet, like a father running into a burning building, he says, I know you and you matter to me and you're valuable enough to die for. Friends, who is defining love for you? May it be God. And may that love shape us and change the way we interact with our world. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for the way you have loved us. That you did not wait for us to love you, John says. You didn't wait for us to earn it like Tom Hanks told Matt Damon. You didn't say to us, earn this. You knew we never could. And you loved us enough that it didn't matter. We already had your love. And so you came and you earned it for us by living and dying and raising from the dead. God, may that shape us in every tangible way. God, would you shape, Holy Spirit, would you shape our understanding of who God is and, and, and what love is and who we are and who other people are so that you might make Jesus real and tangible to Northeast Ohio and to the ends of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.